Welcome, and thanks for listening to this message from City Bridge Community Church. Our heart at City Bridge is to call all people to be fully devoted followers of Christ. To learn more about City Bridge and how you can take your next faithful step with Jesus, check us out online at citybridgechurch.org. Now, here's the message. So Ecclesiastes 7.2 says that it's actually better to be in the house of mourning than the house of feasting. That there's something about the house of mourning that's actually better for us in the house of feasting. So put it another way, it's better to be at a funeral than a feast. And that's confusing for me because I really like feast. Uh, I really like those sweet seasons of life. In fact, uh, the other day we were in a meeting and we were planning this upcoming event and I literally asked the question, so how many Max's Donuts do you think we could get for $1,000? Which, fun fact, it's a lot. Um, I enjoy a house of feasting. I enjoy those sweet seasons of life in which the wind's at your back. You have kind of that healthy, good energy. You have a little bit more joy, a little bit more spring to your stuff. The stresses are low. The energy is high. I enjoy those seasons. And who doesn't? Who doesn't enjoy those seasons of life? And yet the reality of it is, life is often hard. It's often difficult. And sometimes it's little things, right? Like, like little moments that are hard, little moments that are difficult, things that happen in a day that by the time you go to bed, you've already forgotten. Or sometimes it's big things. A doctor's visit, diagnosis, or for many of us, just a random phone call on some idle Tuesday in which your life and your trajectory will really never be the same again. And our scriptures tell us that that is better than the house of feasting. Because not all of us will go through seasons of feasting, but all of us will go through seasons of hardships and struggles because that's life. And we as believers are asked to hold on to these two, what, what feel like polarizing realities, that, that both God is good, he loves me, he cares for me, he's above all things, he's in control, and yet the reality of it is life is hard, life is difficult, life is not, doesn't always go the way that we want it to go. And so what we're gonna do this morning is we're gonna enter into a moment with Jesus, that he enters into the hardest moment of life, the death of a friend. Because no matter where you're at on the spectrum, all of us walk in here with some hurts that we're dealing with. Some are big, some are small, but what those do is they push us into a question that we have to answer of do we really believe what we say we believe when life gets hard, when life doesn't go our way? You see, the common nature of humanity is when things go wrong, we typically ask these questions and they kind of pop in our brain like, like, is God good? Does he care for me? Does he love me? Is he gonna be there for me? Is he in control? And what do I do in the midst of all of this when everything else is screaming to me, this is hard, this is difficult and I have to reconcile in my brain that I read God's word and it says that he loves me and he cares for me and yet the reality of it is I look at everything around me and none of that is affirming that truth. So what do you do in the midst of that? Well, in my journey, I have moved often to John chapter 11 when life doesn't feel like it's going my way. And the story that I was writing in my life is all of a sudden not the story that I'm living in. You see, John chapter 11 was a moment in Jesus' life. He's at a moment in his ministry in which everything he has said and everything he has done has brought glory to his name and people are starting to follow him in these massive crowds. And he is proclaiming this truth 
that he is the God of the universe who has come into our story to bring light out of darkness, to bring hope when there's only hurt and death. And into this moment, in John chapter 11, what we see is the hardest moment of life, the death of someone you love and care about. Jesus is gonna be sitting in a town not far away from this town where a guy named Lazarus is sick. And the passage is very clear that Jesus loves Lazarus, loves Mary, loves Martha, his sisters, that he has this emphatic love for these people. And yet every single thing Jesus does in this moment is confusing. It's contradictory to what we would think Jesus would do. And yet it's very revealing in our own lives and our own stories of what Jesus is all about in the midst of the hardships of life. And so what I wanna do is this. So many times when hardships happen, we have this natural inclination to bring questions before God, which is good. And so we're gonna take those common questions that we have when life is hard and life is difficult, and we're gonna bring them to Jesus in this passage because John 11 will answer all of those questions for us. And my hope is that as we see the response from Jesus, we're gonna see some simple truths that can sustain us in the struggles of life. And as we bring our questions to Jesus, he's gonna actually ask us a singular question back. And that's what we're doing in our time this morning. And so the first common question that a lot of us ask is simply this, does God love me? Like so many of us have an intellectual understanding of that question, right? Does God love me? Yes, of course. And yet when we go through hardships in life and we go through seasons that are hard and difficult and struggles, all of a sudden we don't just intellectually have to answer this question, we have to experientially answer that question. We have to move through a dark season and trust that yes, I know God loves me, but what about now? What about here? What about when everything around me is telling me the exact opposite to that? When my situation is so hard and so difficult, does God love me here? And this passage is emphatic. Over and over and over again, there's this descriptor of Jesus in there that Jesus loves these people who are going through something so hard and so difficult. It says in verse three, so the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Verse five, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Verse 36, so the Jews said, see how he loved him. That as Jesus is moving into this hard and difficult moment, his love for them is so clear that everyone around them is seeing it. That many of us have this false dichotomy in our minds, this false narrative in our mind that pain equals punishment. That if I'm going through something hard or going through something difficult, it must be because God's upset with me and he doesn't love me and he doesn't like me. And the reality of it is since Genesis 3 onward, pain is just a part of the human story. To live is to suffer. And if you are in Christ, if you have come to trust the goodness and grace and gospel of Jesus Christ, then the only attitude that God has for you is grace and love and mercy. And so your pain is not an indicator of punishment, but it is a reality of life. And in the midst of this reality, Jesus wants us to know one centralizing truth deeper than even the hardest pains that we deal with. And it's that you're loved. You're loved. Romans 8, I love it, what it says. It says, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height, nor death, nor job loss, nor death, 
nor miscarriage, nor infertility, nor a wayward kid, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So City Bridge, we know that week after week, people come in here and we're all on our different journeys. And I've heard it said before that you're either coming into a storm, coming out of a storm, or you're in a storm, which is such a pessimistic view of life, right? But it's very true. And the foundational reality that God wants you to hear is that you're loved. You're loved. Jesus loves you. And so from that question, we then have to ask our second question. So then what's the point? What's the point of my pain? Because pain can feel pointless. It can feel arbitrary. It can feel unnecessary. As we think about our own stories and we think about what we want in our lives, pain can feel pointless. But let me be clear, God does not waste a single tear. Everything God is doing is purposeful in your story. Verse four says it this way. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness doesn't lead to death, but it's for the glory of God. So that the son of God might be glorified through it. Verse 15, for your sake, I am glad that I was not there. Why? So that you may believe. So let us go and go to him. And so what's the point of your pain? When it feels pointless and arbitrary and unnecessary, we can hold to the reality that your pain has a purpose. It's for the glory of God and it's for your ultimate good. I love what 2 Corinthians 4 says. Verse 17, it says, for this light and momentary affliction, this light and momentary affliction, pause. Pain doesn't feel light. Pain doesn't feel momentary. And yet, in light of eternity, compared to the beauty and the wonder of what is prepared for us, our moments are light and momentary, no matter the deepest levels of pain. So my wife and I last week just had a hard day and we were talking through it and I just said, hey, I know this was hard, but I don't know if we'll remember this next week. And it was true. I don't even know what the pain was at this point. It was a hard day. That was genuine hurt. And yet in light of a single week, it was light and momentary. And so what 2 Corinthians is doing for us is it's trying to compare the glory and the beauty of all of eternity through not just a day, not just a week, maybe a month, maybe a year of hurt and pain. And yet in light of eternity, it is light. It is momentary when we see it through the lens of forever and ever. But then I love what it says next. It says, for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all that we can comprehend. And so listen, it's not just live, suffer, die, go be with Jesus. No, there's something about our present suffering that actually makes heaven sweeter. And like in God's economy, like no tear is wasted and there's something about it that, that, that this light and momentary affliction is preparing eternity for us. Heaven is sweeter because of the suffering 
in the here and now. Let me be clear and let me repeat myself. God does not waste a single tear. And there's times in our story that it makes sense, right? In which we kind of move through a hard season and then we get to the other end of it and we can look back and all of a sudden the the dots kind of start to connect. Oh, I get a little bit about why that happened to me, why I lost that job, why I lost that child, why I lost that family member. And yet sometimes it doesn't make sense. Sometimes that pain we go to bed with at night and we have to trust that God has a purpose even when we can't see it. Even when life is so hard and so confusing and we have to trust that he's still good. That he's still good. Always. There's purpose in your pain. Sometimes we see it, sometimes we don't. But we know that it's for the glory of God and for your ultimate and eternal good. So that leaves us with our next question. If God loves us, if there's purpose in the pain, then where is he? Where is God in the midst of all of my pain? Where is God in the midst of my hard situations? Well, simply put, He's in control. Pain feels chaotic, doesn't it? It feels out of control. And yet what we see throughout the biblical narrative and what we see here in John chapter 11 is that Jesus is in control. Even when it doesn't make sense to us. Verse five. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Like, I don't know about you, but this is an odd passage for me because Jesus, who loves these people, who cares about these people, who, who wants the best for these people, hears that they're sick. And I can imagine what Mary and Martha were thinking. Like, oh, we've seen Jesus heal the blind guy. We've seen Jesus raise the the, the crippled individual. We've seen Jesus love everyone that he interacts with and nobody's ever the same. Hey, We know he loves us. Our brother is sick. We know he loves him. And so let's send word to him and then he'll come and he'll make everything right. And the moment that Jesus hears this person you love is sick, he waits. He doesn't run after them. He doesn't move into their mess. He stays. And that pain increases for them because that illness turns into death. Jesus in this moment is doing the exact opposite of what we would assume Jesus would do in a moment like this. And let's be honest, when pain happens in our life, God can seem strangely idle. Through this passage, Jesus is acting contrary to everyone else and we have to ask the question, then why? And it's simply because Jesus sees the bigger picture. We focus in so much on a little bitty moment and we want Jesus to just redeem every single moment of our lives and Jesus sees something bigger that's happening here. And he is purposely orchestrating an event that, don't miss this, leads to greater pain. And yet there's still purpose here. One of my favorite quotes in times like this comes from St. Augustine. And he says it this way. He says, life is like a stained glass window 
We see but inches away and only glimpses of the colors before us. But God sees the whole thing and he declares it's beautiful. That's exactly what life is like sometimes. That we are like two inches away from this painting or this stained glass window and and at times it's bright and it's happy and there's joy and it's easy to sing, you're good, you're good, you're good. And then we move and sometimes it feels like a moment that we just move from this light and happy to this dark and confusing. And we're being asked in those moments to proclaim the same reality that God, you are good even in this moment. Why? Because this moment is good? No. Because we can trust that God sees the entire course of our entire life and he is orchestrating all events to move for our good and for his glory. And so we can look at all of this and declare, I trust you, even when it doesn't make sense. Because I know that you're good. I know that you love me. I know that you're in control. Charles Spurgeon said it so well. He said, God is too good to be unkind and too wise to be mistaken. And when I cannot trace his hand, I must trust his heart. His hands are never off the wheel. And any hurt or pain that comes to you must first pass through the sovereign hands of God. He's in control. That's where he is. So then where do we find comfort? I ask that because that's a lot of what this passage is about. Where do we find comfort in the midst of our hurts and the chaos of this life? But I ask that because I have to ask that for myself. Because it's so easy to drift away from God when life gets hard and and kind of go to creature comforts. For me, I can just kind of binge eat food and binge watch Netflix. And... What we see in this passage and what I've seen in my own story is that Jesus alone knows what you need next. I don't care how good of an algorithm Netflix has. It doesn't know what you need, but Jesus does. As you read through this passage from verse 21 through verse 35, Jesus comes into this funeral and everyone's losing it. Everyone's crying. Everyone's overwhelmed by grief. And the two people he loves in that moment, Lazarus, who is dead, and then the Mary and Martha, he's going to come to both of them and he knows exactly what they need. He knows exactly how to comfort them. And they're going to come with the, both the same reaction. And yet Jesus knows exactly how to comfort each one of them. Martha's gonna come with her confusion. And she's gonna say, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And like, like we pray that, don't we? Like, God, if you would have just, if you would have just stopped this, if you would have just started this, if you would just continue this, if you would have just been here, then, then my hurt and my pain wouldn't be happening right now. And she brings that to Jesus, but then she lands in a point of trust. She says, even now, I know that whatever God asks for you, God will give it to you. And so Martha in this moment is bringing her questions and her confusion, and Jesus is gonna engage with her in this moment. He's gonna speak truth to her. He's gonna say, I'm the resurrection and I'm the life. Believe in me. And I got this. You see, in this moment, what Martha needed was truth to cut through the lies in her head 
and to see the beauty and wonder of Jesus. But then Mary comes up. And where Martha runs to Jesus out of her confusion, Mary runs to Jesus just with her grief. And Mary actually says the same thing. Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. It's so deeply ingrained into our hearts that saying, okay, God, I know you're good. I know you love me. I know you care for me. So why didn't you? Why didn't you change my situation? Why didn't you interject the way that I've seen you do to other people? Where were you? But if you read the passage, Mary literally stops right there. She doesn't cloak it with truth. She doesn't remind herself of the goodness of God. She just falls at Jesus' feet and weeps. And Jesus doesn't look at her and go, Mary, you are too blessed to be stressed. Stop it. He looks at her and he loves her. And he engages with her exactly where she's at. And he weeps with her. Sometimes when you're grieving, you need someone to tell you truth. You need someone to tell you, hey, there's still sunshine over the clouds. And other times you just need someone to sit with you, to grieve with you, to cry with you. And Jesus alone knows exactly what you need in each moment. And so there's been so many times where my wife and I are going through a hard season and instead of word crafting the best way to kind of bring her out of her despair, I just give her space. And she goes and sits with who the scripture will call her true husband. I'm a steward. And as she goes there, I just pray for her that God, would you speak to her in a way that I can't would you speak to her to the deepest levels of her heart that, that if I said it wouldn't hit her on those deeper levels because God, you alone can comfort her in a way that I can. And I pray for her, would I pray for really anyone going through hard moments out of 2 Corinthians 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort who comforts us in our affliction so that we might be able to comfort others in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we will share abundantly in comfort too. That Jesus alone is the one who can bring us comfort when we need it the most. And so be a Martha. Come with your confusion. Be a Mary. Come with your grief. Bring your rawness to God. Bang on his chest and declare all the junk that's in your heart and in your mind and trust that he's strong enough to take it and strong enough to carry you through it. Because that's our God. And as I learned in Shiloh, our, our infertility care ministry, until you grieve fully, you will never be able to rejoice fully. So grieve. Christians should be the best people on earth to grieve because we see reality in the way that it really is. And what we find in this moment is that as Jesus comforts us, we find that not only does he comfort us, he's the one who's actually grieving the most. And I love that about Jesus. 
that when I think he's entering into my pain, what's actually happening is I'm entering into his. That the person who's weeping the most in this passage is actually not Mary or Martha, it's Jesus. It says three times in this passage, verse 33, when Jesus saw them weeping, the Jews who had come were also weeping. He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Verse 35, Jesus wept. That's an overwhelming tears, buckets of tears coming from the eyes of our Savior. Verse 38, then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone was laid there. And so to be deeply moved means that everything inside of you is hurting. And yet simultaneously, everything inside of you is moving towards the one that is hurting. That Jesus When he sees the hurt and pain in this world, he is the one who's actually the one grieving the most. And he enters into our grief with us. I was once told that empathy is not pulling someone out of their own pit of despair. It's crawling in there with them and sitting with them. And when you crawl into the pits of this life, you will actually find that it's Jesus who's already there. And so we sit with him. And once again, I read this passage and it's weird to me because Jesus knows what he's about to do. Like he's weeping and he knows he's about to take this funeral and make it a celebration. What's that all about? Well, Jesus sees reality in a way that we don't. He knows that death was never meant to be a part of the story. Depression, hurts, pains, broken relationships, broken marriages were never meant to be a part of the story and so it grieves the heart of God. This isn't what he wanted for us. This is why he hates sin so much. He knows where it leads and it leads to the opposite of life. And so when we grieve, we cry out, God, it hurts. And the beauty of our Jesus is he cries back, I know. Because I'm hurting too. Jesus alone can comfort you. He is loving enough to know exactly what you need. But he's more than that. He's strong enough to do exactly what needs to be done. Because the last question we have to answer is can God really help me in the midst of all this? And the truth is, what we see in the rest of this passage is God can do what only God can do, which is the impossible. Verse 38. Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone laid there. And Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there's an odor. She's very practical right now. For he's been dead for four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believe that you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know you always hear me, but I said this because you know there's some other people around right now. And I want them to believe that you sent me. 
When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died just walked out of the grave. And his feet and his hands were bound with linen stripes and his face was wrapped in, in cloth, the custom burial of the day. And Jesus said to him, to those around them, the community of God, unbind him and let him go. He's free. Death no longer reigns over him. Jesus just did the impossible. This is the seventh and final sign of Jesus before his ultimate sign, which would be his own death and resurrection. And what's so amazing is the first sign was at a feast. It was a wedding feast in which he turned water into wine, showing that he and he alone can create newness of life when there is none. And now his final sign, his final miracle was at a funeral, showing that he and he alone has the power over death itself. And so whether or not you're in a season right now of life that's a feast or a funeral, Jesus makes all the difference because Jesus can do the impossible. And sometimes he changes your situation and we pray for that and we long for that, that that diagnosis would change. My wife and I are praying constantly that my four-year-old niece would recover from cancer. And we pray that her situation changes. And sometimes God does Sometimes God takes that diagnosis and switches it. Sometimes that cancer is gone and nobody can explain why except those that have eyes to see. And sometimes he saves you from the storms of life and sometimes, and this is hard, he strengthens you for the storms. And that is also impossible. Jesus sometimes changes our situations, which we long for, but sometimes he changes us throughout it. So I don't know where you're at right now, but Jesus has the power over death, which tells me he has the power over everything. You have a dead marriage. You have a dead relationship. You feel dead in your sin struggles. Do you believe that Jesus can raise that to life? because I just met a God who can do the impossible. And we serve a God who is strong enough to do something and yet caring and loving enough to do the right thing, even when it doesn't make sense to us. So can God really help me? Only God can. Only God can do the impossible. And so then what do we do? What's our response in all of this? What do we do in the midst of suffering? Well, three things. First, draw near to God. Draw near to God. There are two responses in the midst of tragedy. Either embrace God or doubt him. And we see that in this passage. In verse 36, it says, Then the Jews saw Jesus and said, See how he loved him. But then other people, they were divided over this. And some people said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind, couldn't he have stopped this man from dying? So notice, tragedy. Nobody stays neutral in tra tragedy. Nobody stays neutral. We either draw near to God or we move further away from God. 
Nobody stays neutral in tragedy. And so some people look at God's love and go, yes, he's here. See how he loves them. See how he loves us. And other people begin to doubt his power. Oh, couldn't he have done something? Couldn't he have stopped this? And so City Bridge, when you're going through hardships, draw near to God, create space that you can engage with him. Pour out your heart to him. Bring your ugly to him and trust that he's there and know that when you draw near to God, he will always fulfill the promise that he will draw near to you. So we draw near to God and then we draw near to one another. At the beginning of this passage in verse 19, it says that the Jews in the town came and they comforted Mary and Martha in their loss. And then in verse 44, did you notice? Jesus raised this individual from the dead, Lazarus from the dead, and then he looks at the community of God and says, now you go and unbind him. You see that grief and healing are a community project. We need one another. We were never meant to do life alone. And what happens in grief is people begin to isolate. They pull in upon themselves or they just share enough to feel comfortable with it because they think that by bleeding out a little bit, that that somehow makes them weak, that makes you human. And so with your community group, share, open up. And if you're those in your community group that are sitting with that person who's hurting and is just kind of word vomiting out every single thing that they think in that moment, do not try to craft a theological disposition of what they're saying and correct them in the moment. Sit with them. Love them. When my sister lost her six-month-old, I went down and I sat with her and she had every question you can imagine. And what I did in that moment was I sat with her and I pointed her to these truths and I cried with her and I wept with her and I wanted her to know that God is good. God loves her. God will get you through this and I will be right here with you. That's why we're City Bridge Community Church. So you draw near to God. You draw near to one another. And then finally, you read the story from the, from the end. First Thessalonians 4.13 says, I don't want you to be unaware, my brothers and sisters. I don't want you to grieve as those without hope. You see, this right here, this story right here is a microcosm of a greater story. And we come into the story of John, John 11 with Lazarus, and we already know the ending. So we're not surprised when all this stuff happens, but as Christians, we know the ending. As Billy Graham once said, whenever I'm in hardships and pain, I just go and I read the last chapter of my Bible. And so read the story from the end, because this story right here is a smaller story of a greater story that God is doing in this world. That Jesus didn't just enter into our pain. He took it upon himself. When he who knew no sin became sin, that he would die a sinner's death and be buried, and death would be his end until three days later, we realized that the story wasn't done yet. And he rose. And we who are in Christ know that because his grave is empty, one day ours will be too. And we will walk out 
never to die again. City Bridge, read the story from its end. And so in this moment, we've brought all of our questions to Jesus and we see the beautiful truth of who he is and what he's done, that he loves us, he's in control, he hasn't taken his hand off the wheel, he's got a plan and he can help. And so Jesus in this moment will flip it on us. We've been asking him questions. Now he's gonna ask us one, just one. Jesus will say at the critical moment in John chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. That is who I am. We bring our questions before God and God meets us there with these simple truths of who he is and what he's done that we can hold on to those in the hardships of life. But then Jesus will be one question to us and is that, do you believe this? Do you actually believe that I am the resurrection and the life? I know you believe it when times are sweet, but do you believe it when times are hard, when they're difficult, when you can intellectually say, yes, I know God loves me and he's good and all that stuff. But do you emotionally and experientially walk through those dark valleys knowing at the deeper levels of your heart that I can trust him, I can believe in him? City Bridge, do you believe that he can raise your marriage? Do you believe that he can interject into the hardest moments of life and maybe change your situation, but maybe change you in the midst of it? You see, this right here, if we believe this, that he is the resurrection of life, then draw near to him. Draw near to one another. And let's read the story from the end because it makes all the difference. And it made all the difference for my wife and I. Many of y'all know that my wife and I had struggled through a season of infertility in our story. And in our story, God blessed us with a child. His name's Judah. He's 18 months years old and he is a goofball of energy and is constantly, like I didn't know an 18 month year old could like create such chaos in a household. Uh, we clean constantly and there's still stuff everywhere. And um, we love the little guy so much. And we felt like our family wasn't quite complete. And God blessed us with another child. The day before this past Father's Day, we found out that we were pregnant. And we, it was such a sweet moment. It was one of the happiest moments of my life and will always remain there. We found out, it was late at night, and we just started like cheering and crying and trying to explain to Judah that he was an older brother, but an 18-month-year-old just doesn't really care in that moment. And he just wanted to know where his car car was, and um, we started telling people the next day and inviting people into our joy as family and friends and you begin to celebrate with us. We scheduled our first doctor's visit and we went to go for our first sauna. And we walked in just in such a sweet moment of life. And as we were sitting there, we got to see our little nugget. 
for the very first time and for the last. I had my phone out ready to record a heartbeat. And there was none. Our kid lived for six weeks in the room. And that was his story. And so we came into that doctor's appointment in such a sweet season, and we literally left 30 minutes later, and our greatest fears became reality. The dream of our family became a nightmare. And we were disoriented. We were in pain, and we entered into the hardest grief of our life. So we went home, and the next few days were just a blur because we had to come to terms with the reality that our child had died, that we would never get to hold him, never get to see what he looked like. And so the days became just a fog, and we drew close to God, we drew close to one another, And we began as best as we could just to remind ourselves the truth of how to read the story from its end. I would go out each day and I would go on these long runs and then at the end, I would just recite Psalms 23 to myself over and over and over again. Just that the Lord is my shepherd and he does lead us into sweet seasons, but he also leads us into and through dark valleys. And then I would pour out my heart to him like a Martha, like a Mary, and I just, it was ugly, it was confused, it was hard, it was difficult, but I would just pour out my everything before him, and I would end up praying, God, I don't know what to do in this moment. I don't know how to be a husband to my wife in this moment, because we've never walked through this. I don't know how to comfort her in this moment as she is still carrying around our dead child. I don't know what to do next. And so, God, you're going to have to do something because I can't. You're going to have to step into this moment. I'd go to bed and I wake up and the next day I do the same thing. A couple days in was the first time that I got to be at home alone after the miscarriage. And all I wanted to do was be with Jesus because I knew that numbing the pain wasn't gonna get me very far. But I knew he would enter with me into it. And so I began to weep, I began to pray, just God, would you help me in this moment? Because the truth was, I was so afraid, to be honest, I was so afraid that like this was always gonna be the dark cloud over us that every single time I would play with Judah and his little laughter would fill my heart with joy, I would just have these thoughts that, you know what, someone's missing. And I started to fall prey to that lie that we would never get out of the season. We would always feel this pain. And so I just went before God and I just brought him my everything, knowing that he could take it. I would bang on his chest and then I would fall into his arms, knowing that I could trust him. And I said to God, I just wanted to be comforted out of scripture. So I just said, God, could you show me a part of scripture where someone had a miscarriage? 
Because Jesus, I know he's my great high priest. He's gone through everything so that he can sympathize with me when life gets hard. And I started to think, okay, is there a moment? I know there's moments where people had hardships. I know there's moments where people had struggles. But is there a moment where someone didn't just lose their child, but literally lost a child in the womb? And I got frustrated because I couldn't think of a single moment. And so I cried out to God, God, you have no idea what it's like to lose a kid. Funny how quick we, re- we forget the center of the entire story of God is he so loved the world that he gave his only son. You see, in that moment, all these verses begin to flood my mind and God, just in his sweetness, as I cried out, God, you don't know what it's like to lose a kid. He responded, I do but I didn't lose him, I gave him, because I still loved you. And God in that moment did something in my heart I didn't think was possible. He took my child that was this picture of pain in my heart, and God made him a picture of pure love, because I so loved my child, I would do anything to hold him, to see what he looked like. Or do anything to have him back. And if that's true about me with my kid, then how much more is that true of God the Father with his son? So I begin to praise and to celebrate God. Because who is this God that would give what was nearest to him because of how much he loved me and you and this whole world. And I begin to sing and celebrate that there is a God who loves me. And no matter how dark the night, joy comes in the morning and he meets us there. And so in the deepest pain of our life, we were surrounded and sustained. Our church family surrounded us with meals and verses and flowers and balloons and babysitting and, yes, Max's donuts. But McCam and I just ate our feelings for a few days. Um, our community group gave us this right afterwards. It's a book about Jesus and Lazarus. They didn't know I was teaching on it, but God did. And this book is simply called Goodbye to Goodbyes. And what it did was it helped us remember that there is coming a day where every tear that is purposeful will be wiped away because Jesus is coming back and he makes all things new. So we're sustained and surrounded by community, but more than that, we are sustained and surrounded by Jesus. And so when people would ask, how are y'all doing? That's what we would say. We're surrounded, we're sustained, we're grieving, but as those with hope. There's only one thing that will get you through the pains of this life, and it's Jesus. 
I don't understand how people do life without Jesus or his people. And Jesus is inviting you into the grief he is already experiencing. And so City Bridge, let us draw near to God. Let's draw near to one another. And let's read the story from the end. Because Jesus has won. And he makes all the difference. Thanks for listening. We pray this message encourages you on your journey with Jesus. If you found this message helpful, feel free to share it with others and leave us a review. To learn about City Bridge and how you can take your next faithful step with Jesus, check us out online at citybridgechurch.org. You can also follow us on social at citybridgecc. See you next time.